0: Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in, wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at, and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. I invite you to... Right, go ahead and find your seat again, and if you have a Bible, go ahead and find your Bible. And also, in preparation for worship, uh, we have a communion supplies, too. And if you haven't grabbed one of those and you're intending to, uh, to grab communion with us, then I would encourage you to do that. It's in this blue bowl right here, as I grab my own. Yeah, go ahead and find your Bibles, and if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 65 this morning. Psalm 65. We are in our summer psalm series, and this summer we are focusing on the psalms of praise, the psalms of praise. Now, as we learned last week, all of the psalms are psalms of praise, even the ones, especially the ones that express deep pain, deep confusion. But there are a handful of psalms within the Psalter, within the book of psalms that we have that specifically invite us to praise. And these psalms of praise, as they're called, are simple. They have two ingredients. They have two two aspects. The first is invitation, and the second is explanation. The invitation is always praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's simple. But the explanation differs from psalm to psalm. The explanation uh, says here's why you can praise the Lord. Here's why, in fact, you should praise the Lord. And today's psalm, Psalm 65, is no different. It begins with... Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. And then it tells us in the remainder of why that is the case. Now, you may not feel like Psalm. uh, you You may not feel like praise this morning. But I just want to say that's okay. You know, unlike rides at a theme park... There is no entrance requirement to read the Psalms, to pray the Psalms, to sing the Psalms. Like you must be this happy to participate. You must be this meditative on the Lord to participate. You must be this in love with God to participate. There is no such entrance exam. In fact, the Psalms actually assume that we are not feeling like praise. Our hearts are like a car battery that won't start. Amen? Anybody? Our hearts are like a car battery that won't start. And the Psalms are the jumper cables that God has given us. That's essentially how they work. They're meant to awaken our hearts to praise. Sometimes we skip over Psalms because we say, I don't feel like that. But the Psalms work the other way around. They say, because you don't feel like that, sing me. Sing me. So let me just read Psalm 65 together. You can follow along and then we'll just unpack this beautiful psalm together. This is God's word to the choir master of Psalm of David, a song. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. And you and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hears prayer to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God, of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and all the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joys and the meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. O Lord, may the words of my mouth with the meditation of all of our hearts on this here psalm, be honoring to you would it be pleasing to you our rock and our redeemer and would we see you jesus encounter you jesus through your word this morning holy spirit and power this time unlock our hearts so that we would stand in all of you this morning and it's in jesus name we ask this amen well i have an extended family member lives in the Pacific Northwest and a number of years ago she was visiting family in Ohio and she caught vision of something so beautiful it made her cry now have you ever been caught off by something beautiful have you ever been caught off guard uh, this happens to my wife at art museums this happens to me at music concerts but in the case of my family member this happened at the site of a northern cardinal. <laughs> a northern cardinal. Yet the bird you see in the backyard every single day, the bird that wakes you up with its laser gun call. Pew! You know that one. Um, see, you may not think twice about a cardinal. You may not think twice when you see a cardinal, but she never sees them in the Pacific Northwest. That's the thing. So for her, the shock of red, the black mask contrasting uh, crest on the head the, the the bright orange bill that's shaped like a cone it just caught her off guard by its beauty and this story explains a phenomenon that I have experienced often in my life in fact it's when familiarity desensitizes us to awe when familiarity desensitizes our hearts to all it's when familiar things that are truly amazing that are truly awesome no longer inspire in us all i saw this years ago in israel when i traveled there with my dad you could easily tell the tour guides from the pilgrims the, the pilgrims were like usually on the ground crying every every single place that they went to the tour guides were kind of just standing by the bus Some were in awe, and others' familiarity might have desensitized their awe. We experience this all of the time. Maybe you grew up, uh, don't show hands, especially with your parents, but maybe you grew up with an amazing cook, and maybe you didn't grow up with an amazing cook. But if you grew up with an amazing cook in your house, a well-cooked feast is kind of no big deal. But if you did not grow up with an amazing cook in your house, when you are invited over and the food is amazing, And the placement of everything is amazing. The hospitality is amazing. There's fresh flowers on the table. Everything is seasoned correctly. Like salt is not destroying the food. But neither is there no salt. It's an amazing feast. And you're used to it. Because you grew up with it. You might just eat it and say thank you. But to someone who did not grow up with it. They are in awe of what is in front of them. Familiarity can desensitize us to amazing things this can happen to us especially with God familiarity with God and the things of God can start to desensitize us to the awe that is due before him C.S. Lewis the author once said he was glad he wasn't a pastor like me because he was afraid that this would happen to his relationship with God He wrote, quote, none are so unholy as those whose hands are cauterized by holy things. If your skin is cauterized, it's desensitized. Its nerves are burned. It's hardened. It's unfeeling. And so there's this image. He pays for us of handling the holy things. But in so doing, our hands are cauterized. They are becoming more and more desensitized to the holy. This can happen all the time. When our hearts have been cauterized by holy things, Jesus doesn't astonish us anymore. The glory of God is just sort of a worn down phrase for us. We're ready to turn the channel on Jesus. Some of us. I love what author and writer Annie Dillard writes. She says, quote, On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs. So she makes an exception to the earliest of Christians who worshiped in the catacombs. I do not find, on the whole, Christians sufficiently sensible of conditions. She writes, Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, Does no one believe a word of it? She says the churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies, straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to the pews. And yet, let's be honest, familiarity for all of us has Dampened our awe of God and who He is. So, what we need most is a heart that is sensitized again to God's beauty and to God's holiness. Perhaps for the first time in your life, which is what the Bible, by the way, calls regeneration. When we're given a new heart, a heart of flesh and not stone, a heart that responds in faith, a heart that responds in worshipful awe of the beauty of God and his works and what he has done. That is a heart that is alive to God. And some of you may need that for the first time this morning. Others, uh, others of us need to rekindle that sense of awe. What the Apostle John would call our first love. If You want this. I have good news for you. Psalm Psalm 65 this morning. Was given to you as a gift from God himself. For those of us in this exact condition. It's an invitation to all. This song. And it begins with a very simple phrase. If you look down at the text. Praise is due to you. Now if you have my translation. You'll notice a footnote. Praise waits for you in silence, it says. You know, the Hebrew literally in this psalm begins with a simple phrase. This silence is praise. Silence is praise. Have you ever just stood in silence because you were in awe of something so big, so beautiful? Think about it. Have you recall the time right now in your mind? You stopped talking, didn't you? You stopped thinking about yourself, didn't you? In that moment, you stopped probably thinking about your problems. And most of you probably felt more alive in that moment. You felt more human. You felt unlocked as you stood before something bigger, more beautiful, more astounding. Well, in this first line of Psalm 65, we are told that that is praise. What happened in that moment is praise. Praise. Scholar Derek Kidner, he says, quote, It may sometimes be the height of worship to fall silent before God in awe at his presence and in submission to his will. The height of worship. And this psalm is designed to sensitize us to the beauty of God so that we would at some point just simply stand in silence before Him. Silence is praise. And we would be in awe of Him. This psalm, as I've read it and studied it, I think sensitizes us to awe, invites us to this standing presence of awe in three ways by showing us three realities about God. And I'm going to call it His hospitality his creativity and his generosity the hospitality of God we'll start with that and we encounter it in the first four verses the first four verses the hospitality of God this if you cast your eyes on this text again that's what this whole section is about the Holy Creator God inviting sinful created humans Into his house, verse 4, blessed is the one you choose and bring near. Where? To dwell. Where? In your courts. That's his house. That's his temple. These whole first four verses describe worship in his house, worship at his temple. And so what this first four verses are doing is they're basically exalting the hospitality of God. God who calls you, God who calls me, into his house it makes room for us. Just consider what's being said in this section. First that God listens to us. God listens to us. That's verse 2. Oh you who hears prayer. Oh you who hears prayer, to you shall all flesh come. God is the God who hears prayer. The psalmist says the psalmist is reminding God's people. We know this in our minds, but reminding our hearts, maybe that God's people are not mere subjects of the Lord Almighty, but are in relationship to him are in a intimate relationship with him. You have God's ear. When you stare at the sky at night and you see the stars and you consider the one who made them and who placed them in being, he gives you his ear that's intimacy that's relationship the one who made you listens to you the God who hears prayer that's hospitable some of us have trouble listening I have trouble listening to the ones I love God has your God has time for you God invites you to speak to him and he hears you he listens to you but not only that he wants to take us deeper the psalmist we learn that God only wants to give us his ear, but God wants to dwell with us. He wants to be with us. He chose us, verse 4, for this very reason. He is not a sort of a friend who wants to catch up with you from time to time. No, he actually wants to draw you to himself for all of eternity. Well, what about my sin? What about my uh, all the ways that I sort of are cold towards God, you might be asking why on earth would he want me with my track record, record into his house? And besides, even if he would want, how could I stand before his presence? He's holy. And that's awkward and impossible, you might be asking. But verse 4 even assumes, if you look again, that we will be in his house satisfied, almost glorying in his holiness, not afraid of it. Isn't that amazing? We will love his holiness somehow, not shy from it in his house. How is that possible? Well, verse three tells us when iniquities prevail against me, you atone, you atone. The word here is atonement. That's the answer. That's how we can come to God's house by his invitation, by his calling and actually enjoy his holiness and not shrink back. For us to be in God's holy house with freedom and for joy and with joy, our sin has to, in other words, be dealt with. It can't just be ignored for for a meal. It has to be dealt with forever. Think about how hard it would be to invite someone with whom you have a lot of friction into your house for a dinner party. How much more infinitely difficult would it be to sit down for a meal with God in his holiness if there's friction between the two of you? god makes a way for us to be in his house in freedom and in joy and the word again is atonement once a year on the day of atonement the sins of god's people were dealt with and they did this by bringing two goats is that the plural of goats Goat, goats Goat Yeah, or did you say goat? I don't know about that. Uh, But they brought two goats, we'll say. And the first goat was killed in their place. And then the second goat, maybe you know this from Sunday school. The second goat was what? Sent off into the wilderness. And so with these two animals, God's people saw their sin. Saw two things happen to their sin. Number one, their sin was not ignored away. It was dealt with. Their sin was not diminished. God doesn't say, don't worry about your sin. He does something better. He deals with it. This first goat was killed in their place. He dealt with it. But then, secondly, the second goat shows that our sin was not just dealt with in that way, that our sin was sent away for good. I just read about a teacher who would illustrate the Day of Atonement with two helium balloons one he would pop and the second he would let go (laughs) or better if it's tied just floating off into the distance and this teacher said consider your sins in the first balloon in Christ dealt with consider your sins on the second balloon in Christ sin away that's atonement That's atonement. That's how God atones in the Old Testament. He destroys our sin and he sends it away. Never to be seen again by a substitute. Which is what happened on the cross of Jesus. Jesus as substitute died for our sins. Goat number one. Taking on our sins in our place. But he also sends our sin away into the wilderness. Never to be seen again. Now, therefore, if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation, atonement, atonement. That's divine hospitality. Paul tells the Roman Christians, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this. Listen to this phrase and to this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of. Of the glory of God. So we stand in God's holy house with what? With rejoicing, with joy even. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Atonement. That's how. This is divine hospitality. When you invite someone into your space at great cost. And we see that in this psalm. And we see it ultimately in Jesus. And if we receive this hospitality... We will praise. We might even go silent in our praise. The hospitality of God creates all. Also, the creativity of God creates all. These are the next four verses, if you look down, starting in verse 5. I encourage you to, to cast your eye again on the text because in this you will see a reminder that God established the mountains. We see how he stands over the roaring sea. How he stands over and above the whole world. He is, in other words, creator. And everything else is created. This creator-creation distinction is so important. We don't worship the mountain that we read about in Psalm 65. We don't worship the seas or or shrink back in terror at the seas and all of their power. No, we allow them to point us to the creator who made it. It all points to him. So verse eight tells us that the reason that God is powerful in creation is so that we would have our horizontal awe of the things that he made point us towards him to stoke vertical awe towards him. If this mountain is awesome, then what? How much more is the one who made it? How much more is the one who can still the roaring sea? If you are in awe of the roaring sea, if you've ever stood next to a rock where the water's crashing, if you've ever been in the ocean during the storm, how much more powerful is the one who can still it? Think Jesus who stilled the sea. And that's what creation is designed to do. We are to s- sort of look at it in awe so as to stoke our awe of the creator. Creator creation distinction is key. Author Paul David Tripp says, "Quote: If awesome things in creation become your God, the God who created those things will not own your awe. See horizontal awe that God's creative power is meant to do one thing: stimulate the vertical awe. So I want you to allow horizontal awe to stimulate vertical awe. What what makes you stand in awe in the things that are created?" Whether creation itself or things that God's image bearers have made in art, literature, film, music, a well-made building, architects, a well-designed pencil. You know, whatever it is, what stokes your awe, what makes you sort of stand. Some of you love hiking, camping, backpacking. What stokes your awe Now allow that then to stimulate vertical awe. And I want you to sort of think of it in three ways. This is helpful to me. Look up, look around, look up. So first look up, prepare your day. Like right when you wake up, just prepare your day with the truth that we read about in Psalm 65. That every awesome thing comes from God. It's designed by God, Is made by God. This way you won't look at the amazing things or approach the amazing things of this world for your ultimate joy, for your ultimate peace, for your ultimate meaning, for your ultimate satisfaction. Look up before you look around the best things in life. Just consider what they are for you, your job, your family, intimacy, art, nature. They're usually first in line in our lives to take the place of God, the creator, because God doesn't make bad stuff. And so we're so tempted to look at this amazing stuff and worship it. In some ways, when someone worships the mountain that's described in Psalm 65, the Christian can say, that's wrong, that's idolatry, but I kind of get it. God who made it is amazing, and he doesn't make that stuff. But we who know the true God, we know he made the mountain. So what we do is we look up first and we say, God, you made the mountain. And side point, the more you look to things of this world for your ultimate meaning, for your ultimate satisfaction, the less satisfying and the less meaningful they will become over time. The only way to stoke awe on the horizontal level is, of course, by stoking and starting with vertical awe. You want to be sensitized to this amazing world? Then start looking up. And I owe this insight to Paul David Tripp. And now I want you to look around. Now that you've calibrated your deepest joy in the artist, enjoy and even crave beauty in his art. Read a book that helps you see how amazing these trees are that are behind me, or bees, or vultures. Vultures. Everybody, you gotta know, vultures are amazing. There are books about how amazing vultures are. Look around. Get to know the names and behaviors of every living thing in your backyard. Try that. Revel in it. Go to an art museum. Maybe you haven't been in a while. Revel in it. And then, after you look around, look up again. Connect the amazing things of this world back to God. Look up. Start with God. Look around. And then look up. I'm reading this book right now called The God of Things. The God of Things. That aims to do just that. The chapters take a single, simple, mundane, common thing like dust. And then helps us connect them to God. All of creation has God's fingerprints on it. Uh, So speaking of art museums, one of the reasons I love art museums. And when I go with my wife, she's at a whole nother higher level of appreciation than I am. But one thing I love to do is I love seeing these pictures I've seen on glossy books. Like those coffee table Tashin books that you can have. These, these, these pictures you've seen on glossy books, and I love seeing how jagged they are with, with paint strokes. That's probably my favorite thing about going to an art museum because it brings me to the creator. It brings me to the artist. All of a sudden, like Van Gogh's uh, painting, which I appreciate sort of as a print, becomes a created thing, and I start to think about the person who made it, and it, starts, and it makes me want to sort of read Van Gogh's biography and get to know him a little bit. Same goes with God. When we look at the creation, when we look at what He made, we ought to see His fingerprints. We ought to be instantly reminded of the Creator and ought to st- sort of provoke awe in our hearts. The creativity of God, in other words, could sensitize our hearts again to awe. And then finally and quickly, the generosity of God. I think this psalm aims to stoke our awe with his generosity the final section of this song is absolutely amazing you visit the earth and water it you greatly enrich it the river of god is full of water you provide their grain for so you have prepared it You're wa- you water its furrows abundantly settling its ridges softening it with showers and blessing its growth i just picture creation right now you crown the year with your bounty, your wagon tracks overflow with abundance, the pastures of the wilderness overflow, the hills gird themselves with joy, the meadows clothe themselves with flocks, the valleys deck themselves with grain, and they shout together with joy. What's going on here? What's going on here is that we are being asked to imagine that we are dirt, basically. Whereas my Old Testament prophet asks, what would the ground itself feel like under God's blessing? And this section tells us God is so generous here. God is the opposite of stingy and hoarding here. God is generous first with his presence in verse 9. He, you know, God is everywhere all the time, but he, according to verse 9, he he loves to show up in a special way. He loves dropping in unannounced with his gifts. And so if we were there, if we were creation, God comes to enrich it with his presence. If you've read Lord of the Rings, think Tom Bombadil right about now. In fact, I can't help but think of this character when I read the last part of Psalm 65 so much. So I kind of wonder PhD dissertation alert, if Tolkien had this psalm in mind when he came up with that character. That was a nerdy side point. I apologize. However, what we see here is God himself being generous with his presence. And then also with his provision, the key word here in this section is abundance. You see it if you just look over and over and over again. So much abundant water, our dry, rigid clumps. Again, if we were dirt, softened down to mud and soft ridges. Verse 11 says your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. Literally in Hebrew, it says your cart tracks drip fatness. So the image here is a cart full of good stuff, just dropping things left and right as it goes. That's the abundance of God and his provision. Whenever I do laundry, I always try to sort of grab a giant armful of clothes. You know what I'm talking about? And our our washer dryer is down in the basement. So I have this huge, massive sort of thing of clothes. And inevitably as I go, I think I'm clear, but there's always like a, a trail of clothing behind me when I come back upstairs. That is the abund- that's the image here about the wagon tracks, is that God is so overflowing, he's, he's sort of so generous with his provision, he can't contain it, he can't keep it in. And we think about creation itself, the Triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfectly happy as, as Trinity. What is creation but an overflow, a cart overflowing with goodness? And what is creating humanity in his image, but again, another overflow of generosity? He wants, he wants people to join the party that is the Trinity, that is God, that is the glory of God. And he overflows with creation and beauty. And then when we rebel against him and we sin against him, how much more generous. Say, overflowing from his heart is salvation, is promise, is assurance. I'm going to take you who are running away from the good life. I'm going to create a way atonement for you to come back in and dwell in my house and to experience this feast again you know the temple is designed to look like the garden of eden it has like fruit all over it and trees why because god's like i want you back i want you back i want to feast with you again and i'm going to make it happen through jesus he is generous And that's why we see in this psalm all of creation waiting for the day when that is fully realized. The the, the hills and the meadows are described here as putting on their best clothing and sort of rejoicing. And often in the prophets we see the trees clapping their hands at the coming of the Lord. Why? Because at the coming of the Lord is when his people are restored back to him. And all of creation is waiting, Paul would say in Romans, longing for that day like my kids in a car ride to michigan they're longing for the arrival and that's what these trees behind me are doing they're longing for the full realization of our sonship according to paul when we are fully fully restored and healed and resurrected when jesus returns because in that new creation, in, new, in that new heavens and new earth, we will steward this creation well. And this earth will clap their hands. And God's coming will be deep blessing and deep abundance. His generosity should stoke awe. He's abundant in his promises. He's abundant in his provision. He's abundant in his presence. So I challenge you, create a daily list, maybe, of all of his generous things in your life. And it could just be his promise of generosity. If you're not feeling it today, that's fine. The scriptures are very, very clear that that is a common experience in the life of his people. But you do have generous promises. Take a list of those. Write down the the promises that are super generous of God. Or just the things in your life that are just evidence of his generosity. And they can be very mundane things like the steam rising from your tea or just massive things like the atonement of Jesus, the atonement on the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. That can stoke a generous heart as well. The point is, take stock. There's so much research kind of in the, in the scientific realm about how good gratitude is for the, for the human person. This shouldn't surprise us when we read Psalm 65. As I like to say, science is catching up with scripture here. Richard Winter, psychologist, you know, about the gratitude movement, which is just so big right now. He says, thank whom very much? See, that's the idea. The only problem with the modern gratitude movement is that there's nobody to thank. Unless you know the God who made it all in Christ you do you do See, you were made for awe. you were made for gratitude you were made to stand in silence before God that's how you are fully alive actually and uh, and this psalm invites you into this abundant life a life of all before God and Jesus makes it possible let's just pray Lord would you stoke our awe that's what we need most or for most of us here sitting here and anybody listening in What we ultimately need to know is not more information. If we know more information, sometimes we get desensitized to you. Lord, as we learn about you, as we learn about you, would we connect it to a heart of all? That's why you reveal yourself. That's why we have the scriptures. So that we would see you, that we would get to know you, that we would live in relationship to you. And that we would ultimately stand silent before you in praise and sing to you in praise and learn about you in praise and read about you in praise and learn more information about you, but in praise. Lord, would you make that happen for us this morning? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.